Now listen, in every great arena, uh, there's a Hall of Fame. That's what we talked about last week, right? There's the, the Canton Baseball Hall of Fame. There's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. There's the uh, all kind. there's probably like the best burger Hall of Fame. <laughs> and of course, the NFL Hall of Flame. Flame. Fame. All right, see, I said it too many times, all right? So, I told a story about when I was in college, our football team, we got to go into uh, the tour of the Hall of Fame, and, and there were one of my buddies, he was a big Packers fan, and they had this little bust, like the fake bust of the real bust of Reggie White, and so I bought it for him. Right, he, didn't, he didn't have his wallet. He left it on the bus. So I was like, I'm going to buy this for you. And he sent a picture of it to me uh, this last week because he heard the sermon and we went on that, that tour. And even Reggie White, whose nickname, can anyone remember what his nickname was? Uh, Packers owner right there. <laughs> actual, an actual Packers owner knows the nickname. The minister of defense, even the minister of defense, right, would say, hey, don't follow me, follow God. That's who I build my life on. That's who I forge my life on, right? I try to be like Reggie White when I played football and hit people with my arms and move underneath and, and get all these tackles. But that's the whole point of the Hall of Fame in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, where we're looking at these characters who are held up as great examples of the faith, faith in God and what to do and how to forge a lifelong reliance on God. But if we just take like a two-minute look into their story, we would all realize, hey, there's some flaws. There's some issues, all right? And that's, the, that's probably there for us to realize that, hey, we don't need to model our life after Enoch, like we talked about last week. We don't need to model our life after Sarah, who we're going to talk about today, or Moses, or David, or any of these characters in Hebrews chapter 11. We need to model our life after the God that they followed, after the God that they forged their life on. So we got to use their story as a catapult into that faith, into that deepening relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to continue to do today. I'm going to have Christina share with us about Sarah, a character that I know that she relates to maybe more so than any other character in Scripture. All right, so that's where we are. Let's dig in. Good morning, everybody. Oh, everyone's smiling. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> so I wanted to start today by telling you a treasured family story of my family. Um, it happened when I was in fifth grade and my sister was a freshman or she was going into her freshman year. And we were at home um, watching TV and my dad was in the kitchen. He's the cook in our family. And um, we're just sitting there watching TV. Dad's doing his thing. And out of nowhere comes scurrying across the floor a mouse. And as two young girls, we did what young girls do when we see a mouse, screamed at the top of our lungs, jumped up on the couch, Dad, we're going to die. There's a mouse. <laughs> and um, he came out of the kitchen and was like, what is happening? And as soon as he stepped one foot out of the kitchen, the mouse ran across his foot. And he immediately knew what was happening and screamed, it's a mouse. And we screamed back, we know. And so we're going, screaming back and forth. And dad says, don't worry, girls. I got it. My dad was a football coach and was around men his whole life, um, except at home. He was the only man at home. So he's 
fiercely protective of us girls. And so he was like, I got this. I'm going to save my girls from this mouse. And so his solution was to go into the pantry and grab the broom and chase it around the house, screaming, I've got it, I've got it. And he never had it. And then um, we grew up on a bi-level, and I think the mouse very quickly realized, well, upstairs is not the place for me. So he started running downstairs, and we screamed, Dad, it's going downstairs. And Dad said, I got it. And he started to go down the stairs. And I don't know where he got this idea, but he thought it would be a good idea to take the broom and just go up and down with it as he was running down the stairs. And as you can imagine, it got caught on a stair. And like any good cartoon, he rolled over top of it and was going down the stairs. And there was complete silence in the house of like, Daddy. <laughs> and we said, are you OK? And he goes, I don't got it. <laughs> um, we don't know what happened to that mouse. Might still be living in that house, I don't know. But <laughs> I'm telling you this story um, because, well, one, if my dad ever asked, that is exactly how it happens. I didn't exaggerate in any way at all. It's a st true story from start to finish. But <laughs> I'm asking that story to ask yourself, have you ever in your life thought, I got this, and then quickly realized, I don't got this at all? Sometimes it's funny things like a mouse. But today, let's think about things that relate to our faith and our relationship with God. Have you ever been in a situation with your faith where you thought, I can handle this, and you very quickly realized, I don't got this? About two weeks ago, we had VBS here. And if you didn't help out with it, you missed out. It was awesome. But our theme for the week was Mission Possible. And so every day we said, Without God, nothing is possible. And with God, everything is possible. And we had so much fun telling all these stories about times where God came through and the impossible happened. And it was great, and the kids loved it, and they were dancing and singing and putting applesauce on people. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, but as the week got, went on, how many of us who are adults, who are a little bit older, who were telling those Bible stories thought, great for the kids. Nothing is impossible with God. I hope they never stop believing that. But over here, in the real world, not really sure if that's true. Out here where things are hard and things don't always happen the way that we want them to happen, well, let's see if God really is the God of the impossible. We started to think things like, well, I have this job, and I hate it, and God ain't coming through with a new one. Or some of you out there are new parents, and you think the miracle of life is really more of just exhaustion <laughs> and pain. Or some of you parents think, my kid is a teenager, and if God really knew what it was like to have a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, he would know that some things really are impossible for God. <laughs> And I want to be completely transparent with you. I hear you. And I feel that. I think sometimes in the church we focus too much on what it's like on this side of the miracle. When the mountain has moved and God has come through and everything's great. And we forget to talk about this moment. Where we're standing in front of an immovable mountain. And it's been a long time. And it seems like this is impossible. 
and the diagnosis doesn't go away, and the marriage is not getting any better, and this singleness feels like a never-ending loneliness. So what do we do with a God of miracles when he hasn't done the impossible? Well, if you're anything like me, you say, I got this. <laughs> and we start getting to work. And we start striving. We think, my kid's driving me crazy. Well, I know what's going to fix it. I'm going to get them involved in every sport, every club, every activity. And they're going to learn discipline and how to keep a schedule and how to follow rules. And it's going to be great. Or we think, well, maybe my marriage is falling apart because I gained a little bit of weight. And I just need to lose some weight. I'll get to work. I'll start working out and eating healthy. And I'll just be nicer. I'm not going to get in any argument. We're never going to fight. So I'm just going to completely ignore all the bad things, sweep them way under the rug. Or maybe I'm just going to work more. I'm going to be at my job all the time. Then we won't fight. And then it'll be great. Or maybe it's your faith and you think maybe God isn't coming through because I'm not a good enough Christian. So you start reading all the books, and you get a Bible plan, and you follow every Christian account on social media that you can find, and then you decide, I'm just not going to sin anymore. I'm going to be perfect. <laughs> and we just power our way through the temptation, and we white-knuckle it, and we think, God's going to come through now because I'm being good. And we grind, and we hustle, and we strive, and we do all the things. We busy up our calendar. We busy up our lives, and we hide in stuff, in doing and we say, I got this. And that's what I call bootstrap living. Have you ever heard that saying before? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and that's what we're doing. We're taking our lives and we're striving and we're working and we're bootstrap living. And sure, some things are falling through the cracks, but we got this. It'll be fine. You know, I looked up that phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because I thought, this is a weird saying. Where did it even come from? And I found that it comes from a late 1800s physics school book. And in it, there was an example question that said, why can not a man pull himself up by his bootstraps? And I'm sure the kids thought that was funny, and so they started saying it, and then it started catching on, and people started saying it everywhere, but it was meant to be sarcastic. Because everyone knew, especially that physics book, that it is impossible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Bootstrap living is impossible. You can't do it. You don't got it. <laughs> but here we are, knowing all of that, and we're saying things like, it's okay, God, I'm going to handle this one. You handle global warming or whatever. I'm going to handle this one. I will get it taken care of. I'm going to move that mountain. I'm going to fix loneliness by myself. Figure that one out. <laughs> I'm going to make my spouse be nice to me and do everything I want them to do. If you figure that out, please tell me, because it's not working on my end either. <laughs> We'd say, God, I'm going to sort out my teenager. I'm going to do the impossible myself. I got this. Why are we like this? Why do we take the impossible things away from the God of miracles and try to do them on our own? 
well as Andrew says, that's the onion that we have to peel today. Why do we as people always think, I got this, when we are in the darkest places, the loneliest places, when we are in the places in the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death? And even more importantly, when we are in those places, what do we do about it when we quickly, quickly realize we don't got it? So as Andrew explained, we're going through the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and taking a look at these people's lives to look at what it looks like to follow the true hero of faith, Jesus. I'm going to do it a little bit backwards today. I want to start with the story of the person and then go to Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the Bibles in front of you. Remember, as always, those Bibles are for you. You can take those with you. You can give them away. I know there's a few kids who have like 12 of them in their car. <laughs> but that's what they're there for. They're there for you to use. You don't take my word for it. You take God's word for it. So as you're turning there, which won't be a large turn because it's the first book of the Bible, <laughs> um, I wanted to give you a little bit of context as to where we are in the story. And you're thinking, we're in the first book in the 12th chapter. Not a lot could have happened. Well, a lot did happen in those 12, 11 chapters. Um, first, God created the entire world and everything in it. And he ended with people. And very quickly, the people messed everything up. And so God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work and toil for their food and their lives. And it kind of went downhill from there. And then a few chapters later, the world finds itself in absolute chaos and full of sin. And God says, we need a fresh start. And the only righteous person he can find is Noah and his family. And he says, I'm going to start over with you. So he has Noah build an ark. He sends a flood, floods the whole world, fresh start. And God promises, I'm never going to destroy the world again with a rainbow. And then from Noah and then his son Shem, we meet a man named Abram. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read the first two verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So this is our first introduction into a to Abram, other than his listing in a genealogy. <laughs> but this man is very, very important to the story of God's people. And he is important because of the nation that God mentions in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You see, from this man, God has chosen to build a nation that will be unlike any nation that ever was. It will be a nation under the care, the protection, and the authority of God. It will be his chosen people. In Genesis 12, God calls out to Abram and says, I need you to leave your country, leave your father's house, set up a new family in a promised land, and I will build a nation from you. But here's the funny thing about this promise. It comes when Abram is 75 years old, and he has no children. God says, a nation is going to come from you. 75-year-old man with no children. But Abram is not like us sitting here in the room thinking, well, how is this going to work? <laughs> Abram's had great faith. And so he hears this promise and calls from God, and he says, let's go. 
But Abram is not who we're talking about today. Today we're talking about Abram's wife, Sarai. And Sarai was not much younger than Abram, just 10 years, so she was 65, well past childbearing years. And as a woman who has experienced um, infertility and barrenness, I really relate to Sarai. And I sort of, when I read these verses, I very quickly get a vivid picture in my mind of what Sarah has gone through in her life up until this point. Sort of, because the ancient world was a little bit different. You see, in the ancient world, people lived in these close-knit communities. They weren't like us who ran home, closed the door, and hid from our neighbors. (laughs) They lived in close-knit communities made up of the father and the children and the aunts and the uncles and the grandmas and the great-grandparents, and they all lived in tents, and they traveled together, and they worked together in one group. And as they traveled together, they would care for one another, and they would take care of one another's animals, and they would help the older people and the younger people. It was a full way of life together. And then when a baby was born, there was a mass celebration because that meant there was someone else to help. There would have been one more person to share the workload. In our culture, we do it a little bit differently. We work to provide for the children, but then children were inherently the income. So, children held a special place in the ancient world, and Sarai and Abram had no income. There's an ancient practice in the Middle East, and it's still practiced today among some traveling people groups, and I think it really helps illustrate how important children were to their communities. After a couple was married, the friends and family, they would go to the newlyweds' house, and they would cut open a pomegranate, and then they would spread the seeds of the pomegranate on the doorway of the newlyweds' home as a way to say, we pray that you will have as many children as there are pomegranate seeds on this stoop. Now, if you're anything like me and have the palate of a third grader and don't know what a pomegranate is, (laughs) I have a picture, this is what it looks like, and those are the seeds. So, as you can see, the hope and the prayer was for a lot of children, a lot of help. Many children was coveted, and Sarai had none. So when God makes this promise to make a great nation of Abram, I get this picture in my mind of what it looked like. I picture very vividly Abram running to his wife, tearing open the tent flap, probably out of breath, and saying, it's happening. It's finally happening. We've waited our whole life. But God is going to give us a child, and not just one. We're getting a nation. And they fall into each other's arms, and Sarai starts crying with hope and joy and excitement and anticipation. She wasn't pregnant yet, but there was a promise of one, and she was, she was going to finally be a mother. Finally, the pain and the shame and the loneliness of having no children would be over. Finally. And then if you flip a couple pages in your Bible, you will see that well, nothing happened. Months and months have gone by and nothing has happened. And it puts another very vivid picture in my mind because I have been there too. There I probably thought that first month, that's okay, no big deal. 
Maybe God wanted us to wait until we get to this land that he promised and settle it in. It's okay, it'll be next month. And then next month comes and nothing happens. And, and after a few months, Sarah probably started to get a little concerned, but she reassures herself because this time it's different. There's a promise. It's going to come. Next month it'll come. And next month comes and nothing. And each month comes and each month goes and there's nothing. Again and again and over and over there is a hope and a broken heart over and over, month after month, year after year. And Sarai's picturing those pomegranate seeds and she's picturing that great nation that God was supposed to build and nothing. And she's probably upset and, and shouting at God, you promised me a nation. You promised me seeds and there's nothing. So let's read what she does in Genesis chapter 16, just probably a page over in your Bible. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Of course. <laughs> Just a little marriage advice for you men out there. If your wife ever looks at you and says you should go sleep with someone else, the answer should be a resounding, no thank you, and then <laughs> walk away. But Abram didn't do that. Abram listened. And before we think too poorly of Sarai, um, there's two things I want you to know. One this is sort of a normal plan of action in that time period. If someone couldn't have a child of their own, it was customary for the husband to sleep with a slave or a servant, and if they had a child, that child would be raised as the wife's child. It sounds very Handmaid's Tale, pretty horrible, but <laughs> what I think it really sounds like is the second thing I want you to know. It sounds like It sounds like a woman who had heard the promise of God and as it says in the next verse, for 10 years, she had waited. 10 years, she had hoped. And for 10 years, every month, she received a not yet. 120 months and nothing. And she was desperate for a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of one of those seeds, a glimmer of the start of a nation. She wanted God prom God's promise to be fulfilled. And she thought, you know what? I got this. And who hasn't been there? Who hasn't been so desperate for something good to happen that we have made a very poor decision? Sarah was so desperate for the promise to be fulfilled, the good to happen, that she was willing to do anything. And maybe for you it isn't a child. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a raise. Maybe it's a better marriage. Maybe your kid is driving you nuts and you just want them to be better. Maybe it's being liked by all your neighbors. Maybe it's being avoided by all of your neighbors. <laughs> Whatever it is, sometimes we are so desperate for the good of God to come to fruition in our lives that we will do anything. And we start working and the striving and we throw out our own ideas. And worst of all, we start to play word games with God. 
Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2 was pretty clear. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Sarai said, maybe he didn't mean me. Maybe he just meant Abram. I don't, I don't think there's a problem with bringing someone else in because he didn't mention my name. And sure, it's contrary to how God designed marriage. And sure, it's contrary to how God designed sex. And sure, it goes against every ounce of common sense in the world. <laughs> but God wants to make a nation, and maybe he just needs my help a little bit. And we do the same thing. We look at these things that we want, and we say, of course God wants this for me, so I should just help him out. God, I know you're super busy up there, and poverty and illness are kind of a problem, so I'm just going to take care of fixing my own marriage. Don't worry, I got this. And sometimes we even think I'm being extra spiritual because I'm doing this. We've heard the phrase, God helps those who help, our, help themselves, and it sounds like a proverb or something Jesus probably said, but here's the truth, it is not in the Bible anywhere. Sure, we're not supposed to be lazy people who just lay around waiting for God to do stuff and life to happen, but God doesn't need our help to do anything. In reality, he wants us to look to him for help when we are walking through these impossible things. The truth is, when we are faced with an impossible problem, it is never a good idea to leave God out of the story. When God is left out, there is no Our striving, our plan to fix things ourselves, our hustle and our grind, well, they usually just leave us feeling tired, frustrated, and angry. I mean, look at what happened to Sarai. If you go down to verse 4, it says, And when he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai took it into her own hands, and she was left with contempt. If God is not in the equation, we will always get the wrong answer. And listen, church, this is very important. Because Sarai got results. Hagar had a baby. Abram had a child. But it was not the right result. It was not the child that God was going to build a nation with. God loved Hagar, and he loved her child, but it was not the solution he had in mind. And this is a good reminder that results are not enough to justify what we do without God. It is not right to say They got a baby out of it, so it must have been God's will. In John 6, 33, the Bible says that the flesh profits nothing. So if we're doing stuff by our own accord, by our own strength, without the influence of God, we are doing things in our flesh, and it may get results, but in the end, it will leave us feeling lacking and tired and full of contempt, and most importantly, outside the will of God. So you hustle and you work hard every day and you get that promotion finally because you work so hard yourself. But what did you give up because of that? When was the last time you had dinner at home? When was the last time you prayed with your spouse? You put your kid in all those activities because they need to learn how to listen and be a team player and you don't want them getting caught up in the wrong thing. And that work finally pays off. They start seeing some success and getting good at whatever activity they're in. But they also haven't been at church in a while. You don't remember the last time you had a conversation with them about anything other than that activity. 
You see where I'm going with this? Our work will often get resolved. But without God, it's like adding two and two and getting pizza. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't work. So the story of Abram and Sarai goes on. God does forgive them, and he makes it very clear to them that the promise was for Abram and Sarai, not anyone else. So clear, in fact, that he changes both of their names. Abram becomes Abraham, which means the father of many, and Sarai becomes Sarah, which means princess, and he promises that she will be the mother of kings. But then again, nothing happens. For years, until Genesis chapter 18, when three people visit Abraham. One of those people is Jesus. Of course, Abraham doesn't know that it's Jesus. <laughs> but one of those people is Jesus. And those three men are visiting with Abraham, and this happens. So we're going to be in Genesis 18, starting in verse 9. They said to him, those are the three men, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she's in the tent. The Lord, that's Jesus, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means that she had gone through menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? I love this story so much because it's so typical. Any good wife, when their husband has friends over, is standing at the door just listening. <laughs> what are they talking about in there? <laughs> and I love it. And she hears Jesus, and he says, I'm going to come back in a year, and your wife will have a son. And just like I would do, she laughs at this notion. But it's a different kind of laugh. I've heard this laugh before. I've laughed this laugh before. It is not a laugh because Sarah thinks it's funny. It is a laugh that comes from a place of pain. It's the laugh you laugh when people don't know your story. And you think they have no idea I've been through. It's the laugh of someone who thinks only that were possible. And Jesus heard this laugh, and he knew the pain of his daughter. And he answers her in verse 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have sons. Jesus says, don't doubt. I know that you have tried everything. I mean, you have literally tried everything, some really crazy stuff. You have tried it, <laughs> but you have forgotten the best and only true solution to your problem. Me. God. Is anything impossible for God? And if you turn over one year later in chapter 21, you will see the birth of a little boy by the name of Isaac. And know this, between chapter 12 and chapter 21, 25 years have passed. 25 years from the initial promise 25 years of waiting, even going through menopause, and God finally fulfills his promise because nothing is really impossible for our faithful God. 
So now that we know the story of Sarah, or we have reminded ourselves a little bit, and it sounds a little bit like our story, not the getting our spouse to sleep with someone else part, but this part <laughs> where we think about striving and working and thinking we got it by ourselves, is the story of a woman who heard the promise of God and took things into her own hands and failed miserably, yet God still came through. Even when the faith of Sarah failed, God remained faithful to his promise and he did the impossible. So what are we to take away from this story? What are we to do when we are tempted to take the impossible things out of God's hands and handle them ourselves? Well, the answer to that is in Hebrews 11. So turn with me to Hebrews 11. And let's read what the Hall of Faith has to say about Sarah. We're going to be in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 11. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I want you to notice something. Circle it, underline it, do whatever you got to do to remember it. It says, Sarah considered the faith, oh, she considered him faithful who had promised. Your version might say she judged him. So this is how we keep our problems in the hands of the one who can actually solve them. We consider not our faith, but the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. We consider God. We consider Jesus. And that word consider in the original Greek is pronounced hegaomai. And it means a belief that rests not on one's inner feelings or sentiment, but on the due consideration of external ground. It means that no matter what is going on in our lives, when we consider the faithfulness of God, there are objective things that we can look, look at outside of ourselves remind us of his faithfulness. It means that Sarah pushed aside her feelings of doubt and her frustration and her anger and confusion, and she looked around her at the external things that showed God's faithfulness. She looked at where God had brought her and Abraham. She looked at the protection that he had provided them. She looked at the very stars in the sky and the fact that the earth had not been flooded. She's two generations away from the flood. They talked about it. They knew about it. And she knew he was faithful to his promise to not destroy the world again. Objectively, he had not done that. She looked at the external things around her and rested her belief on that. And just like Sarah, when we are in times of trial and suffering, when there's that little voice in our head who has no doubt about our abilities, but has some serious questions about the faithfulness of God, and we start to say, say things like, is he really going to come through? Is he really going to do what he promised? Will he provide? Will he heal? Will he save? Will he strengthen it? And we start to consider our own striving and our own work. What if instead we stopped for a second and, like Sarah, considered the evidence of the faithfulness of God? What if we stopped to consider the times when our heart was literally breaking but somehow we had a peace that passed all understanding. 
And what if we stopped to consider the times where absolutely nothing went according to our plan, but somehow the new plan worked out better than our plan? And what if we stopped and considered the times where we thought there is no way, somehow, we made it through? And, and what if, most importantly, we stopped to consider our brokenness and our sin and we remember a faithful God who came while we were still sinners to make a way home for us? What if we took all these little moments and remembered that even though we are completely unsure of our faith in God, he remained faithful? In 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, it says, you don't have to turn there, it just says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God, at his core, is faithful, and he can be nothing else. And I need you to understand the wonderful freedom that comes in forging our life on a God who can be nothing but faithful. It frees us from this rat race of living in northern Virginia, of hustling and grinding, because in the end, our God values us more than any job ever could. And that will never change. He is faithful in his love for us. And it frees us from this hustle of being popular in our neighborhood or in our school or at our job because in the end, our God says, even if no one else likes you, I died for you. And that will never change. He is faithful in his willingness to do whatever it takes to get you home to him. And it frees us from filling up our calendar with every activity and club and sport and whatever we think our kids need because in the end, the greatest team our kid can be a part of is the kingdom of God. And he is faithful in his joy in welcoming them to that kingdom and changing them from the inside out. God is faithful. Every word he said in here is true. Every promise he has made or is going to make will come true. Every sin has been paid for, every struggle has been fought for, every battle has been won, and it's not because of anything we did or anything we are, because our God is faithful. So as the band comes back up, I want to issue you guys a challenge for this week, because you all know how much I love to challenge. <laughs> I'm, I have the hospitality team, they're going to hand out some handouts. Everyone gets one. This isn't one per family. It's everybody. And while she's doing that, I have a picture up there. It, I'm calling this the For Your Consideration Challenge. And when you get it, you're going to see that there are five Bible verses on the left-hand side and five open spaces on the right-hand side. Now, Mackenzie didn't make this, so it's not very pretty. But, <laughs> but here's what I want you to do. This week, I want you to take a verse a day and consider the faithfulness of God. And remember that con to consider means a belief that rests not on one's inner feelings or sentiment, but on the due consideration of external grounds. And that is at the top there, so you don't have to remember it. But using that definition and the Bible verse, I want you to lay aside for a few minutes whatever's going on in your life. The doubts, the worries, the struggles, the pains, whatever it is, I want you to push that aside, and I want you to remember the times in your life, or your family's life, or in the world as a whole, where God has showed you his faithfulness. And I want you to take at least 15 minutes. 
Sarah considered the faithfulness of God for 25 years. I think we can do 15 minutes. <laughs> I want you to do 15 minutes. And I didn't even give you seven verses. I gave you five, so you don't have to do it every day. But I want you, either right there or in your journal, I know some of our kids this week were learning about journaling and praying through in their journals, whatever you want to do, I want you to take the time to consider the faithfulness of God. I want you to take some time to stop striving, stop hustling, stop grinding, and rest in the faithfulness of our God. So let's stand and remember the story that God is telling in our lives. Thank you.